Right, good morning. Luke 15. If you found Luke 15, I'm going to read uh, three verses. We're not going to uh, get all the context here for, for time's sake this morning. But in Luke 15, look at verse 6. It says, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Look at verse 9. And when she had found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors, saying, together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. And then look at verse 32. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity to gather together today. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would meet with us in these next few moments, that you would speak to each heart and mind here this morning, Lord, through your word. We love you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, this is a generally a pretty familiar passage of scripture. There's three parables uh, in this chapter. Uh, and if your Bible has the, the periacope, as it's called, you'll get little headings that have been added there to sort of help you know what a section of Scripture is about. And those can be helpful. I use them pretty regularly to try to find my place sometimes. But you do want to be careful because they can potentially, if not be misleading, they might sort of force us into thinking a passage is about one particular thing and we might miss something else, assuming that we know what it's talking about. But the Bible here is definitely talking about three lost things. The first parable is a, about a lost sheep. The second one about a lost coin. And the third one is about a lost son. A lost son. And sometimes people get uh, kind of up in arms or wondering about what the purpose of a parable is. But we don't have to wonder here because Jesus tells us what the setting is and what the purpose is in the first couple of verses. In verse 1 there of Luke 15, he says... Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying. And then he goes into these, these three. So it really isn't a mystery why Jesus is teaching these parables. We've got the two sort of uh, quintessential representation crowds gathered here in the first verses. You've got lost sinners and publicans coming and drawing near to Jesus to hear what he has to say. And you have a self-righteous religious crowd represented in the scribes and Pharisees who are murmuring, who are complaining that it's happening. And Jesus says, well, then let me tell you a couple stories to try to <laughs> set the stage here. Uh, you know, we just sang a song. How can we reach a world we never touch? And that's what these Pharisees were complaining about, right? Because Jesus, the Bible says, was a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. And the Pharisees didn't like that. Uh, in fact, a man by the name of uh, Alexander McLaren, he was a, a Bible commentator, he said this about this passage, and I, I think it's well put and worth reading. He said, the facts are the facts. The problem is the inferences the Pharisees draw. The slanderer saw, as no one could help but see, that there was a strange attraction between Jesus and sinners, that harlots as well as children were drawn to him. He obviously delighted in their company, 
and whose presence these self-righteous Pharisees gathered their dainty skirts in abhorrence, lest a speck of them should fall upon their purity. What interesting wording. But he paints such a vivid picture. These who can only believe in motives as low as their own said of Jesus, Ah, you can tell what sort of man he is by the company he keeps. He's the friend of publicans because he's a bad Jew and the friend of sinners because he likes their wicked ways. It would have been a long while before any penitent woman would have come and wept at the feet of a Pharisee and a long while before any sinful man would have found his way with tears and trust in these self-righteous hypocrites. It is a sign not that a man is bad, but that he is good in a Christ-like fashion. If outcasts that durst not come near respectable people are drawn to him. He said, oh, would to God that there were more of us like Jesus Christ, that more were deserving of the praiseworthy title, a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. There's some, some lost things in this passage. You know, I find that people tend to have three reasons for why they do things in the Christian life. Some do things out of discipline, not necessarily their own discipline, but they feel like God's going to judge them or come down on them if they don't toe the line. Now, God does punish sin and iniquity. We grant you that. But that's not the way he calls us to live our life. I remember hearing a, uh, a preacher early back in my, my younger days uh, who he said, you know, Brad, I, I used to think when I first started preaching that my job as a preacher was to convince people to do things they don't want to do. And he said, today, I wouldn't wish a job like that on my worst enemy. <laughs> That's thought-provoking. Some people do it out of discipline, fear of God. Some people do it out of duty. That is, they believe it's required of them. And, and that's sort of a, a step beyond that, I guess. But what we really want to get to is people that serve God out of devotion, out, out of love for him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, you might keep them out of fear or out of duty, and I would recommend that you do so. But Jesus didn't list that as the reason the ultimate reason that you should do them. First John 3 says that his commandments are not grievous. Well, they're not grievous to the person that loves him. They might be grievous to one that serves him out of duty, but Jesus, the Bible says, came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Can you imagine how Jesus would have been criticized, the number of people he would have upset if he had performed his ministry today? I mean, I made a list, and this is quasi-humorous, I guess, but he would have offended the NEA because he taught without being certified as a teacher. He would have offended the National Organization for Women because he didn't have a, a female uh, disciple. He would have offended the American Medical Association for thinking he could he heal people without a medical degree. He would have been in trouble with the FDA for turning water into wine, the EPA for killing fig trees, the health department for operating a food distribution point without a license. I thought about this. I don't even know which department this would come under, but he encouraged people who had previously been dead and buried to go walk through town. 
That would have probably affected a number of governmental organizations. He'd have been in trouble with OSHA for walking on water without a life preserver. He'd been in trouble with PETA for driving hogs into the ocean. The National Council of Churches for criticizing other religions. The building department for constructing mansions without a permit. The LGBTQ community for saying that God just made men and women. And he'd been in trouble with the abortion crowd for saying things like, for those that would harm a child, it's better off that he never been born. Pretty harsh words, but those are the types of things Jesus said. And, and by the way, Christian, if, if you haven't learned this yet, if you're facing criticism for standing for God, standing for truth, beware the temptation to cave in. Because all you end up doing is you muddy your own testimony. You displease the Lord. And you know those same people that were criticizing you, presumably to get you to come over to their way of thinking, you know what they'll do when you gave in? They'll find something else to criticize you for. They'll, oh, you're just a goody two-shoe, holier than thou. You think you're better than everybody. And as soon as you start laughing at their dirty jokes, as soon as you start acting like and talking like them, then they'll say, what a hypocrite. You're no better than us. You can't win. So you may as well keep your testimony intact and God on your side. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We see the lostness of man presented in this chapter. First, in a lost sheep. Sheep show the, the weakness of man without God. I mean, what chance does a sheep have if the shepherd doesn't come looking for it? Has anybody ever seen a trained sheep? heard a story about two shepherds that were sitting one time. The one shepherd came up to the other one. He was playing a game of chess with one of his sheep. And the shepherd would move a piece, and the sheep would move a piece. And he was just amazed. He goes, that is the smartest sheep I've ever seen. And the other shepherd said, well, I don't know. I've beat him three games out of four. Some of you will get that later. You can enjoy it at lunchtime. Uh, yeah, calling someone a sheep is you're not, you know, boasting their ego, right? Sheep, they're dependent and defenseless, and they represent the lostness of man, our, our weakness, our helplessness without God. The silver represents the worthlessness of man without God. You know, one thing about something that's lost, it doesn't matter how much value it would carry on the market. You might have a super rare, valuable coin worth millions. But if it's lost, it's not really worth anything, is it? It's of no value in that case. And there's something I noticed about if you ever had to go find something from the lost and found, you know, you go somewhere and they got all that stuff you got to rummage through. None of it gets found unless someone comes seeking it. Otherwise, it just kind of sits there. And this is, this is like man, lost, unless God comes and seeks for us, right? But I seem to recall somewhere that the Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. We're lost without him like a sheep, like a coin that's been lost in the, the darkness and the dirt. You know, the Bible says in John three nineteen that light has come into the world. Men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I mean, we make fun of children for being afraid of the dark, but you know what's more ridiculous than that is an adult that's afraid of the light. God is the light the light of this world. And then it's represented in a sun as well. The sun represents the wantonness of man. 
a life of depression, degradation. You know, there's more than one way to be poor, right? You can have a lot in your, your purse or your wallet and nothing inside your soul. That's a poor person, a poor person. Can you imagine this young man sharing dinner with pigs? You don't think in that moment it crossed his mind, I never thought it would come to this. Doing it my way, telling dad, yeah, give me that inheritance I've got coming to me. I'll figure it out. I'll do what I want to do. I'll taste of this world. You know, sin's pleasurable for a season. It probably seemed great for a little while. And then in short order, way shorter than he expected, he can promise you that, way sooner than he expected, the money's gone, his character's gone, his inheritance is gone, and he's eating with pigs thinking, I never thought it would turn out this way. Now the Bible calls him lost. He's lost. But praise God. (laughs) I find it interesting. We think of the prodigal son because of the story. He's he's off in a foreign country in debauchery and sin and everything else. And he comes back to his father. But the Bible says there in that last verse, says he was dead and he's alive again. Says he was lost, but he was found. Found. Because he came home. You know, we talk about people finding God, but who's the one that really does the finding? It's the shepherd that comes looking for the lost sheep. It's the woman who gets out the broom and lights the candle to find that coin that was missing. It's this father that prayed over his son, no doubt. And the Bible says he came home again, and when he did, he was found. He was found. God's an expert at finding lost things. It's interesting. We start off with one out of 100 sheep and then one out of 10 coins and then one out of two siblings. And the focus in each point is the thing that was lost. That's this precious thing that the Bible's drawing attention to. And again, back to the setting of this story and who Jesus is talking to and why he's talking in these parables. Who do you think in the story of the prodigal son, the Pharisees who have associated themselves with? We think of the prodigal son as sort of the hero or whatever, the the focus of the story, but they would have associated themselves with the older brother, right? The self-righteous older brother. Now, do be careful here. Some, Some caution is in order that the Bible says, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. Now, the story ends great, praise God, of the prodigal son. But don't go off into a foreign country thinking that it will leave you better than it found you. Sin did not leave the prodigal son better than it found him. Now, glory to God, we have it recorded for us. His story ends well. But it's not because of his sin. It's in spite of his sin. He had a loving father who welcomed him back and gave him back things that he didn't deserve. But Jesus turns the story upside down, doesn't he? The Pharisees would have expected the emphasis to be on the reward for the brother who stayed at home and did what he was supposed to do. But we get glimpses of the self-righteousness, of course, that was in his heart. And God rebukes that. The picture throughout these parables, I think, is also one of God's compassion. 
I think without too much stretching, we could say that God the Son is seen in the first one of redeeming, that the Son of Man seeking to save that which was lost, the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth in the second one, and God the Father receiving a Son unto himself from death unto life. God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He receives a son. (laughs) Like what one man said, I deserve to be damned and was on my way to hell, but Jesus interfered. (laughs) He interfered. He got in the way. Praise God. Can you imagine the prodigal son coming home and he has to go all the way back up to the door, unlike the story is recorded in the scripture. Maybe mom or the other brother answers. Dad's already disowned you. He says he doesn't have a younger son anymore. That's what many would expect probably to happen. It's probably what the Pharisees expected to happen. That's not what the Bible tells us. Now, the father didn't go follow the son into the foreign land. But as soon as he saw him come home, he did go run to him. And in so much as he's a picture of God the father, that's a thing not seen too often. Lost things found by the Lord. We need to be found by him. Isaiah chapter 1, as we close up here. Say, well, why do we even need to be found? Some of you might be familiar with the Oscar Wilde's story of Dorian Gray. They've probably made it or used it in movies and other things for all I know. It's a a tale set in 1860s Victorian England of a man, young man who a picture was painted of him and he was so enamored with the the beauty of the picture and he started uh, listening to some hedonistic teaching and basically wished how wonderful it would be if he could live as debauched a life as he want, as terrible a sinful life as he wanted, and yet the sin would only mar the picture and not him. And he he lives his life that way for some time. And one night he's alone and pensive and he goes up into the attic saying, I think I'm just going to take a look at that picture after all these years. Wonder what it looks like. And he gets it out and he's mortified. He's horrified by how grotesque the picture has become. It's all mangled and aged, blood stained across it. He actually calls the artist who drew it to come join him and to see what's happened to the picture. And the artist says this in the book, and I don't think Oscar Wilde was a Christian. He says, isn't it written somewhere, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Saying, don't you think this could be fixed somehow? But Dorian in his rage kills the artist. And then he turns the knife on the painting But when he stabs the painting, the painting restores to its original beauty and he assumes all of the degradation upon himself. The book says that he was unrecognizable even to his own servants. Obviously, it's a play on the fact that something else is going on, even though he looked good on the outside. And Jesus warned us about that, cleansing the outside of the cup, right? When there's problems inside. What what do you think the portrait of your soul looks like? In Isaiah 1, verse 18, God says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. God's set judgment on sin. And many of us probably don't want to admit it. I mean, we dress ourselves up and sometimes even have medical procedures to try to keep ourselves looking young and all the rest. But sadly, many people are probably more like their soul is more like Dorian Gray's picture than they're willing to admit. I often get challenged by people when talking about the Bible or Christianity or whatnot. I'd say the number one objection people tend to have is why is there so much evil in the world? If God's good, why are things so bad? Why does he allow all this? And my usual response to them is, well, seeing that you are so concerned about evil and so troubled by it, what have you done about the evil in your own heart? Because whether we like it or not, that's the source more, more times than not. Now, we may have a picture hiding out in our attic somewhere, but it's worth asking, what does your soul look like? Have you just covered up enough stuff? Are you living a life that, hey, at least I can get by in church and smile at everybody? No one at work knows, but inside, you're ravished. The effects of sin. There's only one cure for it. It's the cure that God says, listen, be reasonable. I'm the only one that can fix your problem. Let's reason this thing through. You've got a debt of sin you can't pay. Your soul is marred and tainted with sin. But Jesus Christ paid a debt to take that away. There's a pervasive teaching that plays out over and over, and that is that as long as a person lives a good life, though whatever a good life is is usually left rather ambiguous, they live a good life, you know, they'll, they'll make it through. They'll end up in heaven someday. We witness it played out oftentimes at funerals. This guy might have been a total snake. People talked about him bad, blah, 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 all the time. But, boy, funeral time, everybody wants to act like, well, I'm sure he made it through. Well, you know why they want to act like that? Because they're the same as he is. <laughs> They've all got that Dorian Gray-looking soul inside, and they're hoping they're going to make it too when it comes their time. But that's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the only way to know about what's going to happen to you when you leave this life is for the one who can tell you, read what he wrote. God can tell you what will happen to you when you leave this life, but he's the only one that can. It doesn't necessarily matter how lost we are. There's a friend of sinners who seeks out lost things and lost people. And while there's no one so bad that he can't save them. There's also no one so good they don't need him to save them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for, again, for the time this morning. I pray, Lord, that just your word would sink into our hearts today. I pray that if there's any under the sound of my voice that don't know you as Savior, they've never dealt with that sin in their heart, that they do so today, that they'd walk into the welcoming arms of a loving Savior who loves sinners. Lord, you rebuke the proud, but if we'll come to you in humility, you won't turn us away. And I pray you'd encourage the hearts of your people today, Lord. I thank you for their kind attention. Pray you'd strengthen them and bless them, and that you close this service according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>